Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. We got a new feature today on Nothing Personal. We're going to start every show with what I like to call the Nothing Personal Word of the Day. Word of the Day today, puppet. Yes, that's right. The word is puppet. How was that used? Let me read. A quote from Theo Epstein, president of baseball operations for your Chicago Cubs. If you're a front office and you want a puppet, you don't hire David Ross. Here's what I think he meant to say. We're a front office and we'll only hire puppets. Therefore, we hire David Ross. We didn't interview anyone else for real because we knew that David Ross would be our puppet. And we also knew he would say he's not a puppet, which is exactly what the perfect puppet does when you need a puppet. So why would Theo choose to actually say that they didn't want a puppet? Because as Shakespeare likes to say, Methinks he doth protest too much. What will actually happen with the Cubs and David Ross the first time that David Ross decides he doesn't want his strings pulled? Theo will come right down to the clubhouse. He will put his hands right up the back of the jersey and say, listen here, David, do exactly as I say. Right now, we've got a pretty amazing thing going on with the NFL trade deadline. It's, it's, so here's what happens during a deadline. They don't allow cameras in because we always think that we're doing things that are so secretive. But here's what, what you have. You have a room, you have a ton of candy, a ton of, a ton of snacks, and a ton of people. You've got someone who's in charge of the cap. You've got someone who's in charge of speaking to the owner. If you have a very tight meddling owner, that owner is in the room. If you have an owner who calls himself the GM and president, he's in the room too. Sometimes the owner is just in the room right next door. You have a bunch of men and women who are monitoring Twitter and other websites looking for rumors. Now, you may think that we're the only people who talk about rumors, but I can tell you that every trade deadline I was ever a part of, we had MLB Network on. We were watching CBS, all the other networks, trying to see any information out there. Then you've got scouts and other people in your front office who are giving the GM information. I just spoke to someone from the Jets. I just spoke to someone from the Dolphins. I am hearing blank. Then we have to discern what's real and what's not. All of this is happening under the umbrella of what is the goal of the team. That happens way before deadline day. The GM, the owner, they're getting together well before that. I wonder if Jerry Jones just sits with himself. I guess when you're the president, GM, and owner, that's a three-person meeting, maybe three different voices. In any case, so you have to get together and figure out, are you buyers, are you sellers, are you tanking, what is your cap space, what is the cash available, are you trying to save money, are you willing to take on money? If those parameters are not laid out perfectly clearly prior to the day of the deadline, your franchise cannot succeed. Now, you may have something that we would budget for, which is called funny money. Funny money is what we would do every year. 
It turns out that some of our signings should have been funny money. But what you do is you have a reach trade. You come up with a deal that you want, that you're willing to do, that you think is so unlikely and so lopsided that it's never gonna happen. So for example, we would trade a third round pick to try to get Manny Ramirez when he was back and playing well, let's say for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers would say, no, we want Giancarlo Stanton, who is still in the minor leagues. And we'd say no, and that would be that. So a lot of what happens on deadline day is back and forth between teams where nothing's ever gonna happen. But then you purposefully leak certain things to members of the media so they can tweet and that can draw the attention of other teams so it can maybe take the focus off what you're actually trying to do. Agents get involved in these leaks, teams get involved in these leaks. So every time you're reading an update from any sort of inside NFL source, where do you think they're getting it from? They're getting it from team executives who are literally controlling them as members of the media because they want the flow of information to benefit them. It's why you see certain names bandied about when GM spots are open or coaches or manager spots are open in the NFL or MLB. When names are bandied about, it's because the media says, I will do you this favor. You leak to me information and I will promote you. That happens throughout sports. A day like this is the day where you've got to figure out what's real and what's not real. So there's someone in the trade deadline room who's actually doing that as well. Then you've got the people sort of in the back row of the room. The back row of the room is where the interns are, it's where the second and third level employees are, and their job is solely to make their bosses look better, so they're feeding them information on players who may be traded, who they may be acquired, because then, as an upper level executive, you get to look good for the GM, or for the owner, or for the team president. So it's it's like a little fiefdom, if you will. There's layers of seating in each trade deadline room, and there's also a pecking order for snacks. Rule, very important rule, you don't touch the food until your boss has eaten. It's sort of a little like the jungle in that way. So that's what's going on in the deadline room. Let's focus on specifically what we think is going on in the Jets deadline room right now. So I could do my best Adam Gaze imitation. That's my imitation, my eyes are bulging out because I can't believe my era has started off this way. I can't believe that my owner, not Woody Johnson, he's in England as the ambassador. Christopher Johnson, his brother, is now the owner of the Jets, and it's very telling the dysfunction that's going on in New York right now because the owner himself was on video telling a fan before last week's game, I hope my team shows up this week. It's not exactly what you'd want. If I had an employee on tape doing that, that employee would be unemployed. But when the owner does it, there's nothing you can do but cringe. But from the top, when you don't have leadership, it sort of tends to trickle down, and that's what's happening with the Jets right now. All the world is a buzz about, right now, Le'Von Bell. Will he be traded, will he not be traded? Well, of course he's not gonna be traded, and it's not because the Jets don't wanna trade him or because they're giving up on Le'Von, it's actually because no one will take him. With his salary and what he's doing guaranteed money next year, he's not performing. So going off his name when the Jets acquired him, they weren't tanking, they weren't rebuilding, they thought the Gays era was gonna start with victories and it's turned into a total disaster. So what do they do? They're making these moves, right? They're getting rid of their first round picks. They're trying to figure out, do they move Jamal Adams? Do they think about Robbie Anderson, an undrafted Robbie Anderson, their wide receiver who's had issues off the field? What is their exact plan? For me, they got so desperate that they traded with the Giants 
except I don't exactly know why the Giants had any interest in making that acquisition of Williams, the 2015 first round pick. But for the Jets, I need to see a better plan. So this is very telling as I think about all the rumors I'm hearing and seeing the moves they're making. It just goes to show that from the top down, they're having some problems. My advice to the Jets is to sit out the trade deadline and figure out from now through the end of this season what you're going to do and are you going to choose Sam Ghost Darnold to be your Bill Murray of the future. There's another team in the AFC East who's having some issues as well, and it's fascinating what money can do. The Miami Dolphins, yes, the tanking Dolphins, who lost a barn burner of a game on Monday Night Football. Of course, I was giving 14, and it was 13. Of course, the over-under was 43, and it ended at 41. Is there a reason that Pittsburgh couldn't score that final touchdown? I was sure the game was going to end 31-14, and I'd be a double winner. But if you faded me, you're happy. So the Dolphins, on the trade deadline, they made actually made a real trade. And for reasons that escape me, they traded for Aqib Tlaib. Aqib Tlaib, yes, that's right from the Rams. Aqib Tlaib, who is making $4.3 million. Aqib Tlaib, who's on the injured reserve list. Aqib Tlaib, who will never wear a Dolphins uniform. Aqib Tlaib, who's never played 16 games since he signed his long-term deal and has been traded not once, but twice. Why would the Dolphins do that? Well, A, they've got a ton of money left under the cap so they had money to spend. B, they got a fifth round pick. Yes, let me say it again. The Dolphins received a fifth round pick plus, plus Aqib Tlaib. All they had to do was give the Rams the prorated of $4.3 million. So just to be clear, the Miami Dolphins felt as though a fifth round pick is worth between two and two and a half million dollars. Given the way the Dolphins have drafted and given the uncertainty of a fifth round pick, I find that to be quite shocking. It makes no sense to make a trade like that. It sounded like they had money to burn. The Rams, in order to make a trade like that, you basically call 31 teams. You've got people in that room who are assigned different divisions. They're assigned different teams. When they get someone on the hook, they make the call and do the trade. And they got the Dolphins on the hook. Shocking but true. But don't listen to Chris Greer if you're looking for advice on what the Dolphins are doing, because Chris Greer actually said in one of the great quotes of all time, he said, yeah, we weren't expecting to trade Drake, uh, but, you know, when you're bowled over by an offer and you see such great value, you got to make that trade. Bowled over? A conditional sixth-round pick? That may turn into a fifth-round pick? That's bowled over? Is there any concern on behalf of Miami Dolphins fans that the very people who are in charge of the rebuild are the ones who made it so the rebuild was necessary? Is there anyone who's been a Dolphins lifelong fan who's somewhat concerned that they are are unable to get quarterbacks, unable to get any players, and unable to get a coach, no matter his pedigree, who can make them a winner? I'm pretty concerned about that, I can tell you. I'm pretty excited, though, because once I get done talking about NFL trade deadline, we've got the Major League Baseball Game 6 of the World Series tonight. Who knew it would go six games? Uh, yeah, I had to wait to see. Will I be held accountable? Yes, I will. I thought the series would go seven, but I picked Houston to win in six. But then I hedged when Houston lost the first two at home. Why would I hedge? Because who would know that this series was turning into 1996 part deux? 1996, you may remember, the Atlanta Braves with John Smoltz went into Yankee Stadium 
won the first two games of the series and then proceeded to lose the final four. Game six being back home at Yankee Stadium where the Yankees won the World Series. When Houston lost the first two at home, there was panic in Texas. Not for me because Houston's the better team. It seemed crazy to me that Colin Verlander would lose twice in a row the way they have. In addition, the Houston Astros offense had completely disappeared. What do you do when you can't win at home? You go on the road. And Houston showed that they're the better team by winning games three, four, and five on the road. So what we have now is a heavyweight match. Picture Rocky and Mr. T, right? They're hitting each other. No one will fall. Nobody. Actually, I'd rather talk about Apollo Creed. I just thought of Mr. T because I was thinking about the A-team and Hannibal. Anyway, so picture these two teams going after each other. There's two games left at most in this season. So what happens now? Well, the first thing is, you've got Justin Verlander going for you. Justin Verlander is the co-ace of the Houston Astros staff, except he is becoming the Clayton Kershaw of the World Series. What do I mean by that? It means that he has not performed. He is actually has the fourth highest ERA of any pitcher to pitch in the World Series, a 5.73. That's the first time I've hit my chin on the mic. I'm just getting used to this new mic. Can you guys hear that when I hit my chin on the mic? Sorry about that. I'm just so excited that he has a 5.73 ERA. So he's never won a World Series game, 0-5. The question is, why will this be different? Well, for those historians who can remember all the way back to 2017, Justin Verlander took the ball in game six that day too with the Astros holding a 3-2 lead. Suffice it to say, it was an amazing game seven back in 2017. So is that the same fate that awaits Houston? Well, the key is for Justin Verlander to figure out how to get through the first inning. This is something that I fought with every manager, every single pitching coach who I had over my 18 years. All the best pitchers seem to struggle in the first inning. And I can't understand why we can't have a pitcher go into the bullpen and pitch a simulated inning with an actual hitter. You've seen pictures of the bullpen where they're just throwing to the catcher, right? I wanted a hitter standing there with a bat and I wanted an umpire, and I wanted an actual inning to be thrown by my starting pitcher who was having first inning struggles. The reason I got laughed out of the room is because it had never been done before, except I would speak to pitchers, and I'd say, hey, you know your first inning ERA is three runs more than the rest of the game, and what that does to your overall ERA costs you approximately three to four million dollars over the course of your career, minimum. How do you feel about that now? Are you too embarrassed now for three to four million dollars? I couldn't get any pitcher to do it, but if there were ever a day for someone to do it, it'd be Justin Verlander tonight. Because if he can get through the first inning with a low pitch count and not giving up runs, that puts the pressure squarely on the Nats. And who the Nats have with them is Steven Strasburg, who has his own type of pressure and his own demons and ghosts that he's dealing with right now. Why, you ask? because he's got $100 million left on his contract over four years. That's $25 million a year for four years, except he has an opt-out. You hear a lot about opt-outs, and we've talked about it a lot, both on CBS Sports HQ and not as much on the show, but we're going to during the course of this offseason. Opt-outs are the single worst thing ever invented for ownership. They are the single best thing ever invented for a player. Why is that? Let's take Steven Strasburg. He's got four years left, $100 million. 
His agent is Scott Boris. His agent is calling every team in baseball right now. He's seen them at the World Series, and he's saying, listen, what will you pay my client? If anybody says they'll pay him more than four years and more than $100 million, he will opt out and go to that team. But before doing that, he will call the Nationals and their owner, because Boris has done a lot of business, and he will say, hey, this is what you have to match. Strasburg is gonna opt out and then re-sign with you if you match what I'm getting from these other teams. It's what Clayton Kershaw did last year, and the Dodgers are despondent that they're paying Kershaw that pillow contract of over $33 million per year. And look for the Nats to try to do the same for Strasburg. But for him to perform first things first, he's gotta get that distraction out of his mind. He can't think about free agency, he can't think about opting out, what he's gotta think about is early contact. Don't worry about your stats, don't worry that you're one of the most dominant postseason pitchers with an ERA, I think, of 1.47. Don't think about those things. Think about pitching to early contact because what I have said to people today, on the queue, the number to think about is 21, and I'm not talking about blackjack. The first pitcher to get 21 outs wins the game, and both Verlander and Strasburg need to get 21 outs. Who will Strasburg have the hardest time with? Well, that's clear. When we game plan before these games, uh, we basically go down the lineup. What you do is you get the pitcher, the catcher, and the pitching coach are in a room, so often in the training room, actually, where these meetings happen, while the pitcher's being worked on. One of the craziest jobs for a trainer is seeing what you have to do to a pitcher before he pitches. Picture the movie Major League, where they're working on on the old guy, I can't remember his name, but the old guy's shoulder, and giving it that deep massage with oils and gook and it smells and it's horrible, but that's what's happening while they're going over the lineup. And what the pitching coach is saying is, listen, if you're gonna get beaten by the Astros tonight, you're not gonna let Altuve do it. And we're not gonna let Bregman do it. You've gotta focus squarely on Brantley in the three hole, Springer in the one hole. We are not letting the two hole hitter Altuve, league MVP previous, who is on base 25 straight games is his streak in the postseason, unheard of. Or Bregman, cleanup hitter, not having as good a series or a good a postseason, but he is someone who can beat you with one swing. So that's, that's our approach, that's our game plan. You go over each hitter, what your pitching sequence is gonna be, you go over the signs with the catcher, what the signs will be when there's a man on second. So remember when you ever see a catcher with their fingernails? I'm moving my fingers around right now for those of you listening. I'm putting two, one, four, three, and then they touch their shoulder and their hip and their knee pads. No wonder catchers are getting crossed up. Who can remember all these signs? So they try to make it as easy for the pitcher as possible because they're so distracted with other things. So Strasburg is focused on not letting Altuve and Bregman beat him. Verlander is focused on something totally different. He's focused not on his struggles. He's gotta get that out of his head. He can't think about his second ring in three years, or the Hall of Fame, he's thinking about the number three, meaning get three outs before letting in three runs. He's gotta get out of that first inning, and I believe firmly that he will do that. The second thing that we think about when we talk about this game six that we have to talk about is another Scott Boris client, Anthony Rendon. If you've watched the World Series, you've seen him. He's the third baseman for the Nats. The plays that he makes at third base, he's one of the top defensive third basemen behind Nolan Arenado. Yes, Nolan Arenado, $260 million man on the Rockies, Nolan Arenado. 
Anthony Rendon is going to be a free agent. He wants to get more than $260 million because he thinks he's better than Nolan Arenado, which he is, but he has not shown it so far in this World Series. But he needs to step up. And he's not the player who Verlander is focused on to not let beat him. That's their 21-year-old phenom, Miguel Cabrera, part two, batting fourth, Juan Soto, who just turned legal. So Rendon has got to rebound from his struggles. He's got to lead the Nats to victory or else they, they really have no chance to win. And so what happens if the Astros do win? And uh, there's planning for it. Remember we talked about the Nationals were planning the trophy presentation at Nationals Park? That was a Kinahura because they didn't actually get to celebrate because they lost all three games. But there is going to be a celebration in Houston, either on the visiting side or the home side. If the Astros win, the question that everybody is asking is, is their legacy that of a dynasty, that of one of the greatest teams of all time, or do you have to take into account some of the -the off-the-field issues that have taken place during this tenure, more specifically during this postseason? My view is that you will have baseball-only writers talking about on-field, saying this is a team that will always be remembered for its professionalism, its depth, and its winning. But for those people in more mainstream media, for those people talking by the water cooler, or those people trying to give a nuanced look at sports and business, actually what we'll say is that the Astros won a second World Series in spite of the off-field distractions, and their legacy as a team is actually forever hurt by the actions of both the owner, the general manager, the assistant general manager. And that is something that as a team president is so upsetting that I wouldn't be able to sleep at night because I would be thinking to myself that all the work we've put in to win, to build this team, to go through losing 100 games three years in a row, and we got derailed because of our hubris. And hubris will do it to you every single time. Will it stop them from winning one of the next two games? I think not. Will it stop the Houston Astros from going down in history as one of the great teams of all time? I think so. I love doing interesting things. Uh, some of you may know that I, I love raising money for charity and doing athletic events that anyone can do. I don't ever raise money by trying to dunk a basketball or shoot a hole in one or throw a baseball 90 miles an hour. I just try to do things that everyone could do, but most people choose not to do. So about in 2006, I did the Hawaii Ironman and raised money for charity. And anyone can do an Ironman. You just have to train for a year. You have to not go out for 52 straight Saturday nights, and you have to swim and bike and run until the chafing is so significant that all you do in the shower is cry. But anyone can do that. Then I did a bunch of marathons. I did a double marathon, which is a 52-mile run, raising money as well. Anyone can run for 15 or 10, 12, 14 hours straight. You just have to train, and you have to learn how to eat and go to the bathroom while running. It's doable, not extraordinary. Then I read about this man. This man, his name is Nirmal Purja. Nirmal Purja just climbed the 14 highest peaks in all of the world in 189 days. Let me give you some perspective. The previous world record for a man to climb the 14 highest peaks in the world was, let me get it to you exact, seven years, 10 months, and six days. So he broke the record by basically 
six years, seven years. He just went back to back to back. It reminded me of something I did just a couple of years ago. I did seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. It's called the World Marathon Challenge. I thought that was the most that a body could do, where every day you wake up in a new continent and have to run 26.2 miles. And then you fly to another continent and run 26.2 miles again. We did it to raise over a million dollars for charity. It was an incredibly interesting event. Only 150 people in the world have ever done what I did two years ago. Anyone could do it. Then I read about Nirmal, and it made me a little verklempt because this is a man who's taking what I try and he's taking it to the next level. Because I could learn how to climb a mountain, I could train, I don't have to be able to throw 90 or be seven feet tall. You just have to be committed both in body, soul, and spirit to do something that's never been done. And the key is you can never, never let your mind and your body quit at the same time. That's why people can't do these endurance events because when their mind breaks down, their body shuts down, or when their body shuts down, their mind lets them and their mind breaks down. The key to any endurance event I've ever done is that I never let my mind and body close down at the same time. It's hard to explain how to do it, except you have to just know when your body says no more, your mind will keep your legs going. And when your mind says no more, your legs completely ignore your mind. And this man to climb 14 peaks, I, 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 I can't express to you what that means from a record standpoint. It's as though that the all-time hitting streak in baseball is, let's call it, 56 games. This would be having a 200-game hitting streak. That's the equivalent of this type of record. Or Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in a game to have the all-time NBA record. This is the equivalent of Kobe Bryant scoring 220 points in a game. It's something you wouldn't even consider as possible. That's how extraordinary it is, and I would never let today pass without giving props, the proper props, to Nirmal Perja. But I'll tell you who wasn't focused on that was the NCAA. It's been a hell of a day for breaking news for the NCAA. They decided that they would react to the California law, and we've talked about this. California passed a law that started in 2023 that the NCAA would allow name, image, and likeness, would allow athletes to basically cash in on their NIL, as we like to call it here in the biz, but for everyone else, it's called name, image, and likeness. So California passed the law and the NCAA went absolutely crazy. We can't have one state allowing this. Florida said we're working on a law as well. So the NCAA decided that today they were gonna come out with a statement and this statement made me smile because it came from the president of the NCAA and on his bio, it actually says he's president of the Ohio State University, but as a badger, I'm not gonna call it that. It's just Ohio State University. You lost the lawsuit, okay? Deal with it. Here's what Michael Drake said. We must embrace change to provide the best possible experience for college athletes. I'm reading that again. We must embrace change to provide the best possible experience for college athletes. What he really meant there was that our athletes have been getting paid off the record for so many years in dark alleys, in dark rooms, on yachts, on boats with boosters, all of it under the table, 
that now we want to give them a better experience where we can actually do a PowerPoint presentation when we recruit our athletes to tell them how much money they can make. But remember the rule. It doesn't come from the school. It comes from outside companies. But here's how it's really going to work, folks. Let's say you want to go to Duke and play basketball. Do you think you're only going to meet with Coach K? I don't think so. Coach K is going to set you up with the following. A car deal. A shoe deal. A clothing deal. Possibly a home deal. A cash deal. Any sort of company that has anything that the player wants. So if I'm the top high school basketball player in the country and I want to go to Duke, I go to Duke and meet with Coach K like this. This is my list of wants. Let me tell you, I'd like to buy my mom a new house. I'd like to have two cars. I need a different outfit for every single day of the year. And oh, I want to win the sneaker wars. So I'm going to design my own shoes and wear a different pair. Oh, and that's for all 10 of my friends. In the old days, Coach K would say, eh, we'll see what we can do. Well, the new days are upon us. And Coach K says, behind curtain number one, we've got your car deal. Behind curtain number two, we have your shoe deal. And it's all legal. That's the crazy part about this. The NCAA basically, they bended, they bent their knee. Why would they bend their knee? Because they were being left behind. I'm completely against this and here's why. How many athletes are actually going to get these deals? The best of the best, right? Do you think a water polo player at the University of Wisconsin is going to get the same offers for name, image, and likeness as the football player? And the companies who are giving money directly to the players, are they going to give it to the schools? Those companies have a $10 million marketing budget. If they can now give the players the $8 million of the $10 million and give the team $2 million when the team used to get 10 that team is now $8 million in the hole. Why does that matter? Because that school is using that $10 million from a sponsor in order to fund other athletic programs, to fund scholarships, to fund tuition, to fund other items in a school that do require funding that can't survive on its own. Now by giving that money, it's all you're paying, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? You're taking it from your left pocket, putting it in your right pocket. You don't think these companies all of a sudden are saying, oh my God, wait, we can do name, image, and likeness for players? Our marketing budget just doubled. We're going to spend $20 million now on the Duke basketball team. Negative. That's not how it works at all. They're going to spend the same $10 million. They're just going to put it in a completely different place. So this NCAA deal that we're talking about, it's breaking news. What's breaking about it is the backs of the programs for many of these colleges that are no longer going to be funded in the way they have been in the past. And the other thing that's breaking are new rules. Because if you think that all is going to be great and all the lights are going to be on and the curtain's going to come up on all of the illicit activities that take place between athletes and colleges and universities, I'd say you've got another thing coming. We are in the first inning of this situation. And as Karen Carpenter always likes to say, we've only just begun. Yes, we have. I told you all yesterday, I was, I was going to watch a movie. And I picked a good one, folks. Dolmite is my name. How did I come up with Dolmite is my name? Because I read an article that 
Actually, Eddie Murphy has a chance at Oscar glory for the first time in his illustrious career. This is a this is an actor who I've loved from the beginning, from his stand-up Eddie Murphy Raw, all the way through Eddie Murphy Delirious. If you haven't watched these, get older, Google it, YouTube it, and watch it. He was hysterical. Then from his movies, from Trading Places to Coming to America, and then he tried to get serious and get some Oscar love with Dreamgirls. Denied when the Oscar went to Alan Arkin, who was tremendous in Little Miss Sunshine, might I add. But Eddie Murphy was upset, as he should be. This could be his vehicle. Dolmite is a true story about an actual 1970s movie where it was sort of like supposed to be a spoof movie. People didn't know how to react to it. It was a movie that was crude. It was full of sex and violence and nudity and blood, except there were no real special effects. It was done on a shoestring budget. Eddie Murphy combined with Netflix to make a full-length feature Basically, it's a redo of a movie from the 70s telling the story of the actor. I don't want to give you spoilers because this movie just came out. But here's the one nugget for you to remember. When you're watching the movie, you have to remember it's not like The Disaster Artist with James Franco, where you are talking about people who didn't know what they were doing trying to make a movie just because they had money. This is about a concept back in the 70s that, that was called black exploitation. This is when there was a huge racial divide. This is when black African and African-American actors were unable to really get as mainstream as they wanted to be and the numbers that they wanted to have. They had a hard time finding movie screens, a hard time making the money they wanted to make, and believe me, there was a lot of talent there. Dolmite was created and ended up being a huge hit. The spoiler is, it's a happy ending. You wouldn't believe this movie. You have to give it the first eight minutes, but once you're through that, you will not move, you will not click, you will not go to the bathroom, you will watch it. Look for Dolmite Is My Name to get some Oscar love and make sure you watch it as soon as you can. You watched the World Series uh, Game 5, I hope. You know, we've got Game 6 tonight, we spoke about it. Um, I've been talking about something for a long time, and it didn't get a lot of love until too late. And now it is. So let's talk about robo-umps. About a year or two ago, actually, let's go back to the beginning of baseball. Uh, it was 2000 was my first year in baseball. And I remember thinking to myself, what exactly, how do I learn the tendencies of umps? Because that was really, analytics were not big back then. It wasn't that we could go online and get the information we can about every umpire the way we do now. Right now, the way it is, that when you've got someone behind the plate, Gary Cedarstrom, Lance Barksdale, Joe West, anybody, you can find out in a minute and give to your pitchers and players what that umpire's tendencies are. Does he call a low strike? Does he call a high strike? Does he give you the inside part of the plate or the outside part of the plate? Is he consistent? We can tell you everything about him, including his proclivities for the type of movies he watches. Back in the day, it didn't happen. We wanted that information because we felt like we were not getting consistent calls from umpires. What's changed since I started in baseball in the year 2000 and finished in the year 2017? Nothing. We just have more information about the mediocrity. And this is not about being against human umpires. This is not about trying to take the human element out of the game. This is about consistency 
and for once doing what's right. And what's right is making the game a fair game. Did you see some of the calls in game five? Now all of a sudden people are calling for robot umps? I did an entire essay this season about all the things in baseball that I'd like to change in order to try to improve our demographics, code for get younger, get the pace of action increased, code for make the games end before four hours. And I was open to anything, including batting out of order, including eliminating the shift, including making a pitcher face at least three batters, getting rid of mound visits, getting rid of throwing over to first. Who likes throwing over to first? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody. Did I just get a hand raised from Jack there in the audience? You like throwing to first, Jack? He's nodding because he's not microphone. The reason he must like throwing over to first is only for one reason, because he thinks that it has some quashing impact on the running game. Well, what it does have is a direct correlation to the clicking game, as in people clicking away from the game in record numbers, and that's what we have to stop. Why would robot umps accomplish my goal? Because it would add consistency and it would save time. No more arguing. No more bitching and moaning from managers or players. Because a call is a call and it's the same call to every player, every inning of every game. You're not a homer, meaning some umpires tend to maybe, they'll never tell you this, but trust me, umpires do have it in for certain players and certain teams and certain owners, certain ballparks. That's real because that's human. This eliminates that. Any of you watch tennis? Well, I do. And the replays in tennis, when there's a line judge who makes a mistake, it's no longer John McEnroe saying, are you serious? No, you just go to the Jumbotron. The fans love it. The crowd loves it. The TV audience loves it because the technology exists where the ball either hits the line or it doesn't. It's very binary. There's no cloud of miscommunication. It's either on the line or it's out or it's in. Of course, any question in tennis, I've never seen a ball fully in and that's what was challenged. No, I see it touch the line by just a hair or just a little bit of the yellow part of the ball. In baseball, we can do the same thing. We can have a robo-ump call balls and strikes and it's immediate. Everyone knows the count. Everyone knows whether it's a strike or ball. There's none of this when players think that it's ball four. They take off their shin guard, they drop their bat, and the umpire calls it strike two on a 3-1 pitch, and then the player has to turn around. Then he argues, then he puts his shin strap back on, then his batting gloves, then he steps out of the box. It's 45 seconds, and then there's another pitch thrown. Let's get rid of that. I could save two to three minutes a game on this alone, and I wouldn't have to read one more tweet about people calling for robo-umps. The reason we can do it is that the technology is there. The reason we aren't doing it is because we're scared of the umpire's union and we're scared about traditionalists saying, don't screw around with baseball. Well, I've got a secret for all people in Major League Baseball, in the commissioner's office, and everyone running a team and owning a team. If you don't screw with baseball, baseball will have a funny way of screwing with you. And all of the golden geese whose eggs we are sitting on to have our teams worth in the billions and making money every year and all that we take for granted will disappear in a cloud of arguments between whether it was a ball or a strike. Robo-umps will take care of all of that.
I get to do a pick every day, and I'm not getting tired of it. I'm never going to get tired of picking because I love it, and I love being here at CBS Sports and CBS Sports HQ. I love the fact that we've got people willing to stand up and be held accountable for their bets and their picks. So I'll tell you right now that if you took the Steelers in the over because of me, how are you not fading me? I can't get a pick right if it's not the NBA. I told you that. I was honest with you about that. And for whatever reason, the Steelers, I can't even understand why they didn't win by 14 or more. The Dolphins, the tanking Dolphins gave them a touchdown at the end of the first half. You saw that play, I hope, at the end of the first half when the Dolphins chose to blitz with eight people, leaving three defenders in the secondary, and two were playing man-to-man, one was playing zone. I feel as though that my Pee-wee League team, his quarterback, could have thrown that touchdown. Now, Mason Rudolph had a good pass, that's fine, but that call for a blitz on third and 20, and that's the reason why my pick went bad? It's outrageous. You're telling me that's not the reason the Pittsburgh scored on that. So I was giving 14, so I should have expected to cover given that, and I did. And in the fourth quarter, we had a chance to go over and cover, and we ended up doing neither. God, gambling's hard, but I will not let you down tonight. We've got an easy pick. So easy. Astros are winning the series. I know I'm going to lose my weight to see, but I'm going to win my pick of the day. Grand slam pick of the day. Why do I think Verlander over Strasburg? We went over it earlier, like in the second 10 minutes of the show today, for all the keys to the game and what everyone's thinking. But there's one little nugget I left out till the very end. The reason why we're going to be very careful to win in six games if you're the Astros is A.J. Hinch, the manager, doesn't want to pitch Garrett Cole in a game seven because he's so worried about Garrett Cole's free agency and doesn't want him to have to come back on short rest after pitching game five. And God forbid there's a game seven, and God forbid Zach Greinke doesn't pitch a complete game, and triple God forbid if Garrett Cole is sitting on the bench and not pitching in a game seven, because he's gonna be forced to. And will that impact his free agency? No. Is A.J. Hinch completely in another world for caring about Garrett Cole's free agency? He's doing that to be a player's manager, but that's ridiculous. Your job is to win a ring, AJ. You work for the front office. You work for the fans. You don't work for Scott Boris and Garrett Cole. So AJ Hinch will be pushing and pulling every lever and button to make sure the Astros win this game because he doesn't want to get to a game seven because he's afraid, absolutely afraid of what would happen if he's forced to pitch Cole. We also do a wait to see. I love wait to see. I love the accountability of it, right? Because we have to wait, and we will see, and then we're gonna tell you what we saw. Yesterday, what we did see were two press conferences, and I was fascinated by both of them, because I know both these men, Joe Girardi and David Ross. We talked about David Ross because he was involved in the new, nothing personal, word of the day to start off every show. The word today was puppet. David Ross is not a puppet, according to Theo, but he sort of is, according to me. And then Joe Girardi was introduced, Talking about 2009, when he won the World Series as the Yankee manager, and how they beat Philadelphia, but he always loved the fans in Philadelphia. (laughs) It made me laugh. Joe, come on. You love Philadelphia because they gave you the most years, the most money. And you didn't love the fans in Philadelphia. We used to talk about it when you managed the Marlins. But I get it. You don't love them when you're against them, and you love them when you're with them. 
There's tons of players like that. There's tons of cities like that. I hate the fans of Philadelphia, except when I'm in Philadelphia going to a game. And then I love being a fan in Philadelphia. So the question is, who will make the playoffs first? The Philadelphia Phillies or the Chicago Cubs? You're going to tell me that both will because they're both favored in the National League to have made the playoffs this year, and neither one did. Well, I'm here to tell you and remind you that any team with Bryce Harper is going to have a super hard time making the playoffs, no matter who your manager is. So wait to see. Will it be Ross? Will it be Girardi? It's going to be Ross. That is my wait to see. David Ross will lead his Chicago Cubs with Theo right behind him into the playoffs. I think Philly's going to have a very hard time in the National League East. We do have the offseason starting earliest tonight, latest tomorrow night. It is going to be one of the most fascinating Major League Baseball offseasons with all of the free agents we have. We have great hitters, Rendon, great pitchers, Cole and Strasburg, a lot of secondary free agents as well. So I just can't wait to see what teams start tanking, what teams start thinking they actually can win. All of what you've heard with the NCAA, all of what's going on with the NFL trade deadline, all of the teams who are trying to do what's right to get their team to win. But at the end of the day, what these teams won't tell you, but I will, it's just business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.